Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you should lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. Thank you for your love for us demonstrated in Jesus and that you sent him into the world that we can know you and know the way of life that you created us for. So, Lord, these words from Jesus, Lord, they may be hard for us to hear, but we trust you, and we know that you love us, and you want what is best for us. So help us to receive your truth and your grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would grab a seat. So this morning we, uh, we have the privilege of hearing God's word shared with us from uh, my good friend Jack Wisdom. When I grow up, I want to be like Jack. Uh, so uh, Jack lives in my neighborhood and I will see Jack running around the neighborhood like this machine. I mean, this guy is like the epitome of fitness at what, like 48? What are you? Uh, Something like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just turned, I turned 45 tomorrow and so my dream is to be like you at 48. Um, so, uh, I am excited. Uh, usually when Jack preaches, I'm out of town, um, but we were out of town this week and Jack was gracious enough to be willing to come and bring the Lord's word, uh, for us this morning. So, uh, just really grateful for you, brother, and thank, thank you for you, bringing God's word. So, thank you. In the dazed, uh, and confused decade of the 1970s. I became a Dallas police officer as a result of a practical joke that spun wildly out of control. <laughs> Forty years later, I stand before you as a relatively well-educated, semi-sophisticated, humble super lawyer. <clears throat> I have obtained degrees from a variety of quasi-respectable citadels of higher education. And I'm here to tell you, uh, with no equivocation, the Dallas Police Academy was the very best school of them all. The, the curriculum was spectacular. Fighting, shooting, and driving fast were my favorite classes. <laughs> but I also enjoyed learning about searches and seizures under the Fourth Amendment, uh, effective interrogation techniques, crisis management, and intervention, uh, CPR, high-speed parallel parking, spits, shining shoes, and the proper cultivation of the vintage 1970s Magnum P.I. standalone mustache, <clears throat> which was acquired uh, by DPD procedure. <laughs> we even had a practicum on how to spot and identify counterfeit money. 
What we learned is that the very uh, basic skill that is required to, to identify that which is counterfeit is to be thoroughly familiar with that which is real or authentic. Over the years, uh, counterfeiting techniques have become uh, much more sophisticated, but the basic principle holds true. In order to uh, identify and avoid the bogus, we must be thoroughly familiar with the real. And this principle applies to things other than money. But of course, the consequences of being conned by something which, that is bogus will vary uh, depending on the circumstances. Uh, for example, uh, if, uh, if someone uh, were to uh, uh, spend a few hundred dollars on what turns out to be a counterfeit a designer handbag, the consequences are relatively benign. If a wealthy art collector spends uh, $10 million on what he thought was an authentic Amadeo Modigliani, who is, uh, of course, uh, as you well know, a sophisticated and cultured people with access to the Internet just like me. You know that he is a modern Italian master uh, who gets a lot of money for, got a lot of money back in the day for painting portraits of ladies with really long necks. <clears throat> Pretty neat. It just turns out that there are thousands of counterfeit or forged Modiglianis in circulation. But if you're a wealthy art collector and you buy one of these counterfeits or forged paintings, the consequences are still relatively benign, even though the financial stakes are significantly higher. The consequences can be mitigated, of course, if you have a good lawyers and the art auction house has good insurance. But what if uh, uh, you are Boeing? And you sign a contract with an aerospace uh, subcontractor uh, for parts, and that subcontractor provides counterfeit airplane parts. And those parts uh, find their way into commercial and military aircraft. The consequences are potentially catastrophic. In fact, the FAA has confirmed that between the years 2010 and 2017, approximately 20 aviation disasters can be attributed at least in part to uh, counterfeit parts in the aircraft. The same principle about the bogus and the real applies to even the deepest realities of human existence. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Uh, to keep from being conned by the bogus, we must be thoroughly familiar with the real. God's creative purpose for everything and every one of us can be summarized as shalom through love. Shalom is this amazing Hebrew word that defies easy translation in the English language, but it, uh, it, it communicates uh, this deepest reality that we long for, which is perfect justice, perfect peace, uh, perfect love. Uh, shalom through love is God's creative purpose. 
And the easy, a shorthand, a biblical term that covers this creative purpose is the word communion. And we have been created for communion. But we are perpetually tempted by bogus or counterfeit communion. So it's important for us to be thoroughly familiar with the real so that we are not conned and taken in by the bogus. So uh, I've taken, uh, went, taken some pains here to give uh, what I think is a, a good working, translation, uh, working definition of authentic communion uh, stolen in large part from Thomas Aquinas. Authentic communion begins with God who is love and who created us for love. To love is to will the good of the other person. Authentic communion, therefore, is self-giving love between and among persons. This is the basic reality of who God is. Uh, and this is exactly what God has created us for. That is, who the eternal, who the triune God eternally is, is communion. That is why God created human beings to bear his image, and that is what it means to be truly and fully human. Loving and being loved by God and our fellow human beings. That is shalom, the way things ought to be. This is what we're created for. This is the deepest longing of the human heart. And it corresponds exactly with God's creative purpose. So uh, what is the problem? It seems like if that's our deepest longing and exactly what God has made us for, then we ought to live in a world that is marked and characterized by authentic communion and self-giving love. Is that uh, the story of human history? The answer is resoundingly and unequivocally no. And the Bible accounts for this in Genesis 3 with the, the narrative, uh, the story about the fall, the rebellion. Uh, when, when, when a man turns his back on the creator and man says no, to a life based on fidelity and trust in the God who made him. Uh, and this has dire consequences and catastrophic effects throughout human history. This uh, is something the Bible is unequivocally clear about. Uh, so uh, for those uh, who are concerned that you can't reconcile a loving God with the way things are in this world, uh, the Bible already accounts for that. Because the way things are in this world is not the way things ought to be. There is a significant gap. And that gap is caused by what Scripture calls sin. Now, the biblical word for sin is hamartia. Uh, it's a word taken from the games of antiquity. It's a word that was applied to the archers. Uh, uh, and hamartia means to miss the mark, to miss the target. And what harmatia means in Scripture is to miss the target or the mark of being fully human, which is to live out the communion God created us to live. Now, God did not, does not uh, like the status quo. And so God has decisively stepped into history to restore shalom through love, to restore communion. And that's the story of Jesus that we keep talking about uh, week after week, uh, in this church. So even though the history of humanity is characterized by man's dehumanizing inhumanity to man rather than self-giving love, Jesus came to restore authentic communion, shalom through love. So that 
is just some basic uh, biblical blocking and tackling to set the stage for our difficult passage today. Now, our passage today is in the Sermon on the Mount. We're meticulously uh, uh, working through this amazing message of Jesus. Uh, as I read the Sermon on the Mount, it is about the way of the kingdom of God, which is the way of shalom through love. Sermon on the Mount is a communion document from beginning to end. If you look at how the Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes, when it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be filled. Those who hunger and thirst for justice are not filled with some abstract notion of justice. They're filled with the fullness of the God who himself is justice. That's communion, being filled with the fullness of God. Or blessed uh, uh, are the pure in heart, right? Uh, for they shall see God. Seeing God face to face is the ultimate restoration of communion that we look forward to. And all of this is by grace. And this language of the purity of heart, that's not something I can manufacture. That's not something I can engineer on my own. Uh, the pure heart comes as a gift of God's grace. What the prophet Ezekiel promised uh, in the age of the Messiah, that God's Holy Spirit would create a new heart in God's people. Because we desperately need a heart transplant. And so the promise of the new covenant and the reality that is brought about by the Holy Spirit, when you say decisively yes to Jesus Christ uh, and the gospel of grace, is the Holy Spirit creates a new heart within us and among us. And it's only that new heart empowered by the Holy Spirit that can live out the way of the kingdom. Otherwise, it's an exercise in futility. This is not some new set of rules and regulations that we can master through our own disciplined diligence. This is a result of the Holy Spirit's work in people who say yes to God every day. Only then can we live out the difficult standards of the Sermon on the Mount. And when it comes to difficult standards, I guess they don't get much more difficult than the passage David politely gave me to preach about today. There should have been a trigger warning before this sermon, <laughs> but we're already in it, so let's just keep going. Uh, this is my translation of the passage. Uh, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that a man who looks at a woman for the purpose of disordered, self-serving, sexual desire already has committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than to have your whole body thrown into the domain of desolation. And if your right hand makes you sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of you than to have your whole body thrown into the domain of desolation. These are the words of Jesus the Messiah, uh, the King. So what do we do with them? <clears throat> I have uh, made a list of 27 observations I want to make about this passage. <laughs> but I looked at the church bylaws, and they prohibit uh, a preacher from making more than seven observations on one text in the course of one sermon. So I have limited myself to the highly biblical number of seven observations. 
Uh, and I'm going to move through them relatively quickly uh, because if I get bogged down here, uh, this could take a while. Uh, observation number one. Uh, the ancient law codes had a double standard that allowed men to engage in extramarital sex so long as it was not with another man's wife. Now, that explains what you see in the Hebrew Scriptures when it comes to all these concubines uh, and uh, multiple wives uh, that the kings had. Uh, it was never a good idea, but the ancient law codes did not prohibit it. Now, Jesus obliterates the double standard, and he puts men and women on equal footing with equal culpability. So this passage, when it talks about disordered sexual desires, uh, even though he talks in this passage specifically about a man having these desires towards a woman, uh, this could also apply and does apply equally well to women and men. Congratulations, uh, Jesus has put us all on equal footing when it comes to this hard saying. Uh, uh, Jesus made it clear that what you see in the ancient law codes, the double standard, was not God's creative purpose and intent. Uh, the double standard arises as a result of the hardness of men's hearts. Observation number two. No one ever accidentally commits adultery or any sexual sin. Uh, uh, in law, we distinguish between uh, intentional torts and those torts that are negligence-based. Uh, and there's a higher level of culpability for the intentional tort. You could get punitive damages. Uh, 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 in many cases. Uh, now, sometimes uh, negligence claims can, rise, can give rise to punitive damages as well. Uh, but what you need to understand about this is adultery uh, is an intentional act. Uh, and this idea of adultery of the heart, uh, which I think some translations would give you the impression that it's something that can accidentally overtake a person who has no uh, purposeful uh, intent uh, to engage in any uh, disordered sexual activity, and yet is just suddenly overwhelmed by these, you know, emotions. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, the, the Greek here makes it clear that Jesus is talking about, uh, the purpose of my looking is my lusting. That is the purpose of my looking. Uh, that's what motivates me to look and keep looking. That's what constitutes adultery of the heart. So adultery of the heart occurs when one person looks at another person for the purpose of a disordered, self-serving sexual desire. And of course, I have tried to avoid using the word lust in my observations because that word is so overused and carries such a many strange uh, and interesting connotations. This is actually what the word is getting at, epithumia. Uh, observation number three. The sexual relationship between a husband and a wife is one of the definitive paradigms for authentic communion. Arguably, it is the definitive paradigm for authentic communion. Arguably, it's the key to unlocking everything the scripture is about. The Bible begins with a wedding. When Adam gives, uh, uh, when God gives uh, the bride, uh, song of unmitigated a wondrous joy. The Bible ends, consummates, uh, climaxes with a wedding between the bride uh, uh, for whom the lamb 
uh, was slain and the lamb himself. Uh, so this idea of, of a marriage is so critical and integral to the Bible's understanding of communion that we cannot downplay it or, or miss it. Uh, and so the promise that the two will become one, the promise that is there in Genesis, this is communion language pointing to a spiritual reality that transcends the physical act. The physical act give, gives rise to a transcendent spiritual reality. C.S. Lewis uh, says, this says we become one organism, but it's not nearly a physical uh, organism. It's a spiritual reality, this oneness that is created by the sexual act between a man and a woman. Uh, and this sexual act in God's creative purpose is for marriage, for a covenant uh, that will last till death do us part. Observation number four. Sexual infidelity is one of the definitive examples of bogus communion. And you can see this in the prophets. Uh, uh, when, when, when the prophets uh, speak on behalf of Yahweh uh, about the transgressions of Israel and Israel's unfaithfulness, uh, routinely they refer to this as an act of adultery. There is no casual sex. This is a very countercultural, uh, highly biblical uh, perspective. There is no casual sex. Uh, that passage from 1 Corinthians that was read earlier is shocking in what it says. Because what the passage from 1 Corinthians says, what Paul is saying uh, to these disordered Christians, uh, disordered followers of Jesus in this disordered city called Corinth, is that when one uh, person who purports to be connected to Jesus goes and has sex with a prostitute, that the two become one. So in a purely commercial transaction, the sexual act still produces a spiritual reality that transcends the physical act. If it's devoid of emotion, devoid of any uh, proper attachment or affection, it still produces a spiritual reality of oneness, but is a catastrophic spiritual reality of oneness. It's more catastrophic than bogus airplane parts. There is no casual sex. And we are bombarded constantly with messages everywhere we turn that there is. That the physical act can be disconnected from any larger narrative or truth. This is a complete disaster. It's a disaster for multiple generations of kids that we've raised. Uh, I don't know where it's going. Uh, but I can tell you uh, from uh, recently as a couple of years ago when my daughter Claire uh, took uh, high school sophomores uh, from a very uh, 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 affluent uh, high school community uh, to Young Life Camp, uh, she cried for hours every night to hear how many bad decisions they already had made sexually, and to hear them talk about the consequences. There is no casual sex. This is a complete catastrophe. And if the church is not a countercultural community that lives consistently with the ethos of the kingdom, then frankly, uh, there's nothing more uh, that God can do. Observation number five. 
Jesus' startling hyperbolic words about plucking out eyes and cutting off hands should not be taken literally. <laughs> there are famous examples uh, in the history of the church uh, where people have uh, taken these words literally. Uh, that's not what Jesus was getting at. But these words must be taken seriously. Do you understand the difference between taking something literally and taking something seriously? I think we dismiss what Jesus is saying here because it's obviously hyperbolic, so it must be something I don't need to take seriously. He used this type of language specifically so that we would listen uh, and take him seriously. And the reason we should take those words seriously is because of the destructive power of bogus communion. We really should be willing to do whatever we can do to avoid sexual immorality. For some of you, that probably means getting off the internet. That may feel like something that's more extreme and hyperbolic than plucking out a right eye. Or cutting off a right hand. But it's been my observation as a young life leader. Forty years. Uh, that we have now produced. Uh, generations of young Christian men. And I can't speak to the women on this. About the women. Young Christian men. Who are completely addicted. To pornography. And absolutely paralyzed in their ability to be effective agents of the kingdom of God because of their continual uh, guilt. The devil uses this uh, to make them, render them completely ineffective and incapacitated in the ways of God. This is just the way, this is where we've gotten to. Because we didn't take Jesus' words seriously. Now, obviously, uh, the issue of lust is not about eyes uh, and hands. It's an issue of the heart. Observation number six. When, not if, we experience a disordered desire, we can and should repent, confess, and accept forgiveness before we act on the desire and cause real damage uh, to other people. So uh, I grew up outside the church. The first time I ever heard someone talk about uh, this lust in the heart concept, it was a comedian named Richard Carlin. And on his record, uh, what he taught me was, if you've already done the deed without doing the deed, you might as well do the deed. Everybody remember that record? You got to be a, of a certain age. That's very flawed thinking. Jesus asked us to focus on the disordered desire of the heart because that still gives us an opportunity to repent before we do real damage to the lives of other people. Because there is no casual sex, there is no inconsequential sex. And so when, not if, you have these disordered desires, 1 John 1, 9 still applies. 
Confess your sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all injustice, all unrighteousness. And God forgives us because of what Jesus has already accomplished on the cross. And Jesus is there as your advocate when you confess your sins, even if your sins simply disordered desires of the heart. Those are not small things. And finally, number seven, the real issue is proper daily heart care. I mentioned earlier that the prophet Ezekiel promised that in the age of Messiah, we would have heart transplants. We needed heart transplants because our hearts were desperately and catastrophically impacted by the rebellion of sin. And so when, when David, uh, in the midst of his adultery, uh, cries out and confesses, created me a clean heart, O God. That prayer is answered for those of us who've said yes to Jesus. You get the new heart as members, as, as citizens of God's kingdom, as participants in God's grace. We get the new heart, but we have to care for the new heart. Uh, do you know anyone personally, and don't disclose any medical issues in violation of HIPAA, but do you, but do you know anyone who's had a heart transplant, a physical heart transplant? This is one, I mean, we're so blessed to live in a city where, uh, you know, some amazing uh, doctors uh, made this procedure relatively routine. This all happened in my lifetime. I can still remember the first uh, failed attempts at putting a new heart in a human being. And now walking around among us and running marathons and doing amazing things are people whose lives have been renewed by the implantation of a new physical heart. It's absolutely spectacular. Do you realize that new heart, that transplant, uh, comes with a lot of instructions and guidelines? Are you familiar with this? Here's just one from Johns Hopkins. Uh, to give your new heart the best advantage in restoring your health, keeping your weight, at an optimum and steady level is very important. The best way to control your weight is with proper diet and exercise after transplantation. Diet becomes a very important part of your life. And on and on and on about all this stuff you have to stop doing if you want this new heart to work. This is not an imposition of some law to keep you from having a fulfilled life. Do you see this? This is what the doctors are saying you have to do so that the whole procedure was not a big waste. The same holds true for the new heart that Jesus gives us. Proper daily heart care is absolutely necessary to keep our heart from being conned by the promises the bogus and counterfeit promises of bogus communion, to keep from becoming sitting ducks to disordered desires in a culture that is characterized and stamped and marked indelibly by disordered sexual desires that have become somehow normalized, then we have to be diligently caring for our heart every single day. Every single day. This is not a matter of law. This is a matter of love. Because remember, God's creative purpose is that we have communion, shalom through love, that we connect to our spouse, we connect to our kids, we connect to our partners, we connect to our neighbors, we connect to our friends uh, in that way that God created us to connect. 
Authentic communion begins with a heart that has been transplanted and properly cared for. That is why uh, the psalmist says, and the preacher in Hebrews reiterates, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So, friends at Apostles, you've got a very simple mission each and every day to care for the new heart that God has given you. You must intentionally listen to God's voice. Then you must purposefully, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, say yes. Because any answer other than yes when you hear from God hardens your heart. And if you let your heart be hardened day after day, the consequences are completely catastrophic. And you will fall for bogus communion. uh, And many, many lives will be impacted. So that's all I've said about that.